Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we pray this morning that you would fill us up with your love and drive out all false loves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're going to continue on that same theme and think about John's challenging words this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And I want to start us off uh, with a story that I heard from Sarah, my wife. Um, Sarah's had a lot of contact with the foster care system in Florida. Um, and this is a true story that she told me about a real family, although I'm going to change the names. Um, so Sarah knew a married couple who had two biological children, but they also served as foster parents here in Florida. Uh, and when their own children were both in elementary school, they fostered a 12-year-old girl named Alice. And Alice came from a very broken home where she was neglected and abused. And at 12 years old, she came to live with this loving Christian family, and she, then, she ended up staying with them throughout the whole rest of her childhood. So when she first arrived, Alice's new foster parents made a special effort to take good care of her. So they made her breakfast every morning, uh, and they gave her a packed lunch to take to school, and they drove her to school, and they picked her up from school, and they asked her about her day, um, and they shared hot homemade dinners with her around the family table every night, and they made sure her room was kept clean and tidy. So they did everything they could to make her feel safe and welcome and one of the family. Uh, but one day, uh, not many weeks after Alice arrived, her foster mum was vacuuming in Alice's bedroom and she noticed that there was a strange smell in there. Uh, and it wasn't immediately obvious where the smell was coming from because the room seemed to be clean and tidy, but there was this definite rank odour. Um, so the mum investigated and she searched the room and she found, hidden underneath the bed, the mouldy remains of dozens of packed lunches. Um, and when they talked with Alice later on about what they'd found, she confessed that she hadn't been eating the lunches that they gave her for school every morning, but she'd been saving them up and hiding them in case she needed the food later. And upon further investigation, the parents learned that Alice had lived for years in a home where she wasn't properly fed. She would often go days without food, and she learned through hard experience to ration food carefully when it came. So even though her situation had changed now, and she was living in a new home with a loving family that fed her good things every day, Alice still had remnants of her old orphan mentality. Her new foster parents told her through tears that she didn't need to do that anymore, that she could always count on having enough to eat now. The lunches would be there for her every morning, but it still took a while for Alice to adjust to the new normal. The habits of her former life ran very deep in this in many other ways. And I think this can be a picture for us of what it looks like to God when we love the world. It looks like Alice squirreling away her school lunches until they rot. It's sad and unnecessary. It doesn't live into the reality of our new life in his family, and it comes out of a persistent orphan mentality. All right, so today we're going to continue our series in 1 John, and I want to explore chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And you can turn it up now, it's uh, page 1021. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15. 
Um, and in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we're going to look at two things. First, the theory. What does John say about loving the world? And then the practice. How can we unlearn the habits of our orphan past? So first, we're going to talk about the theory. What does John say about loving the world? Well, very simply, he says, don't do it. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So I don't know about you, but when I read this verse, I go through a strange transition. Um, So I I read it, and it makes perfect sense. It kind of makes a gut level of sense. And then I start to think about it, and I start to wonder, actually, that seems to make no sense at all. Um, And then uh, as I keep thinking about it, I have to work my way back to understanding it again. So um, I don't know if you're following that same kind of process, and I don't want to overcomplicate things and upset the apple cart for anyone who intuitively knows what John means here. Um, But if you feel stuck on this verse, or if people are asking you about it and you don't know how to answer them, then uh, I do want to work through what he means. Um, It's going to take a while for us to get back around to uh, simplicity on the other side of complexity. Um, So John says, do not love the world. And what we need to understand is that there are two sides to love and two sides to the world. Okay, So um, the questions that come up are, Uh, isn't love always good? And didn't God make the world? So wouldn't loving the world be to do a good thing to a good thing uh, and therefore be a good thing? Um, And these are good questions. Uh, And and the way we understand them is that there are two sides to love and two sides to the world. Okay, So let me explain what that means. First, there are two sides to love. Uh, Love is an action and a feeling. Okay, you might have heard John Mayer sing Love is a Verb. There are books, there's a book upstairs on the library that says Love is a Decision. That's true, but it's also a feeling. So um, this letter of 1 John talks a lot about love. It talks about loving God and about loving our brothers and sisters. Uh, And it's going to say later on, we love because he first loved us. And it's going to say, there's no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. These great teachings on love from the Bible. Uh, The book of 1 John mentions love 45 times, right? Which is more than any other book in the New Testament. A close second is the Gospel of John, but 1 John is the winner. Um, And another interesting thing is that every single time in this letter that John uses the word love, it's the Greek word agape. Okay, it's agape love. So you might have heard that there are different Greek words for love. Uh, You might have heard about storge, which is family love, and eros, which is romantic love, and phileo, which is brotherly love. Um, And you might have heard that agape is a word that the New Testament authors kind of invented, or at least they redefined and repurposed um, to talk about the passionate, selfless love that they'd seen in Jesus. Um, And all throughout this letter, agape is what John is talking about. It's agape every time. So when he says, we love because he first loved us, that's agape. And when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, that's agape, right? So we're not talking about different kinds of love here, but it is clear from the way John uses the word that there are two different sides to love. Because if you glance back, at 1 John chapter 2, in verse 10, you'll read, whoever loves agape, his brother abides in the light, right? And when we read that, we know that John is talking about the kind of love that's care and kindness, right? Whoever loves his brother takes care of his brother and is kind to his brother. So that's the sort of love that we see in Alice's foster parents 
A love that sees a need and is glad to meet it. It's an outward-looking and practical kind of love. Love in action. But then here, in verse 15, John says, Do not love the world. And then he elaborates in verse 16 that such a love includes the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. So we recognize here that what he's talking about is an internal desire. It's about personal passion. But in both cases, it's the same word, love. So we conclude that they're not different kinds of love, but they're different aspects of the same kind. Agape love has a practical side and a passionate side. It's an action and a feeling. And I think that's helpful for us to see because we know that love is a big deal, central to our Christian lives. Um, We're trying to obey the great commandment to love God and love our neighbor. But I suspect that when it comes to love, we're all better at one part of it than the other. We're either better at the action part or the feeling part, right? Uh, So let me draw you a couple of cartoons. Uh, Maybe one Christian has a love that's very dutiful. She gets up every morning to pray and read her Bible for an hour, and then she checks that off her to-do list. She volunteers at the soup kitchen every week. She never misses church on Sunday, and she serves in the children's ministry faithfully whenever she's needed. Her love is sincere and dutiful and practical, right? But her heart is rarely, if ever, moved by the beauty of God. And it doesn't stir with compassion for the people she serves. So there's a lot going on externally, but very little internally. And then there's another Christian whose love is very passionate. His prayer times in the morning are often full of tears over his own sin, over the beauty of God, over the suffering of his friends. He sings in church with his arms raised to heaven and his face full of rapture. But if you ask him for help, he doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't have a place where he's regularly serving, and he doesn't have any meaningful contact with the world outside of his own small circles. So there's a lot going on internally and very little externally. And those portraits are both cartoons, right? (laughs) I don't know anyone who actually looks like either of them entirely to that extreme. But I hope you recognize them enough to see what I mean. We would say that neither one is a full picture of Christian love. Neither one describes the whole of what John means by agape. Christian love needs to be both internal and external. It's both passionate and practical. It includes duty and delight. And that's true both of our love for God and our love for each other. So, if you know that you tend to love in very dutiful ways, then let your love also be passionate. Open your heart to God and his people. Or on the other hand, if your love is very passionate, then let it also be practical. Make commitments to God and to people and keep them. All right, so that's the first thing we need to understand, that there are two sides to love. We're on our way to figuring out what John means in verse 15, but we also need to see that there are two sides to the world. So there's the world as God made it, which is pure and peaceful and right with him. But there's also the world as we now find it, the mutinous world that has set itself up in opposition to God. Um, And that's the world we read about in Psalm 2, which we sung just now. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed one? So it's talking about the world that's no longer as God made it because God made it for himself. But now it's organized itself against him. 
In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, John explained that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So we can see both kinds of world in that verse. John's already introduced us to this idea of the hostile world and he returns to the same idea over and over again in this letter of 1 John. So he's going to say later on in chapter 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that's the world that we're not to love, the world that's organized itself against God. So there are two sides to love, external care and internal desire. And there are two sides to the world, the created world and the mutinous world, right? And if we put those two ideas together, we could make a little grid with four squares. Um, And each square would contain a different kind of love for the world. So square number one would be caring love for the created world. And that's obviously a good thing. Square number two would be desiring love for the created world. And that's a good thing too. It's fine to delight in the good things that God has made as as long as none of them eclipse our love for the creator himself. Square number three would be caring love for the mutinous world. And again, that's a good thing in the Bible. Jesus said, love your enemies. And when we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's talking about God's caring love for the, created, uh, for the mutinous world, right? Confusing myself. Um, uh, and then the last square, the last square is the only bad one, right? Square number four. That's the one John's warning us about. Square four is the desiring love for the mutinous world. Okay? We can't love God and desire a world that hates him. That's why John says that if we have this kind of desire for the world, then the love of the Father isn't in us. So that hopefully explains in ever so many words what John told you in 10. Um, So now John adds another reason in verse 17 why loving the mutinous world is a bad idea. And that's because the world is mortal. Right? So he says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a really big and important idea. John says that the rebellious world that cut itself off from God doesn't have a life source anymore. It's dying. It was designed to be connected to God and it can't live without him. So the world isn't like a baby, it's more like a tree branch. Okay? When a baby is born, you cut the umbilical cord and the baby lives. It has life apart from the mother. But when you lop off a tree branch, you sever that vital connection and the branch dies. It doesn't have life apart from the trunk. And what we learn in 1 John is that the whole created universe was designed like a branch to remain connected to the trunk of God and to draw its life from him. And it turns out that if you cut that connection, the whole world dies. So now that the universe has cut itself off from God and turned against him, it's lost its source of life, life and it's doomed. It's mortal. It's passing away. And we should feel a lot more disgusted by things that are passing away than we are. I mean, like viscerally repulsed, right? Because we mostly share the attitude of the world that says, well, hey, it's here now. Let's enjoy it while we can. Does it really matter that it's only temporary? But... When we see the words mortal and temporary, we should think that means rotting. That means rotting. 
What John means is that we live in a decaying and putrefying world. The mutinous world is a corpse. And the things that it values as precious are already disgusting. Not later, now. To hoard the treasures of the world is to hoard moldy bread. And if we've tasted the eternal life of God, then we should find the rewards of the world actually nauseating. Passing away means rotting. So that's the theory. That's why John commands us not to love the world. But now we have to talk practically and ask, how can we unlearn the habits of our orphan past? Because I don't know about you, but I still love the world a lot. I'm absolutely still hoarding moldy sandwiches under my bed. I'm still operating in many ways with this orphan mentality. So I know that I'm accepted. I've accepted Jesus as my saviour and I'm accepted by God. I've been born again into the family of God. So I'm not just fostered but adopted by a new and loving father. And I know that God my father takes upon himself every aspect of my care. Breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. And that's not going to change. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. But I still see myself behaving a lot like Alice. Squirreling away packed lunches under my bed. There are still deep habits of the orphan life left in my heart. And my heart still loves my father far too little. And it loves the world far too much. And I suspect that some of you here feel the same. And we want that to change. And John's writing this letter to help us change. But one thing to say is that I've become convinced that we shouldn't despair, at least not yet. Um, Because the redirecting of our heart's passions away from the world and toward the Father is the great project of our lives. Uh, That's kind of what we mean by sanctification. And it doesn't happen overnight, it doesn't happen quickly, but it does happen. God can do it, he's going to manage it in the end. And when we can say that this job is done, that our hearts love God purely in an undivided way, then we can also say that we're perfect. Weaning ourselves away from loving the world and learning to love God perfectly, that's the whole ballgame. That is the Christian life. So we might recognize that there's still work to do, but we shouldn't despair. We should ask, what are our next steps? Um, Well, let's think about what lies lies at the heart of an orphan mindset. What's behind that? Uh, I think it's really about comfort. It's about comfort. It's that we need to be comforted. Uh, That's what lay at the heart of it for Alice. She stored up old lunches to comfort herself that she would never have to go hungry again. And I think it's really basically the same thing for us. The behavior is motivated by a need to comfort ourselves. It's a kind of self-medicating. Because life is really hard. Life in the mutinous world is hard. It's tiring and painful and frustrating and disappointing and tragic and awful. And we need help. We need comfort. We need something to make the pain go away. And the world promises us some pretty potent painkillers. Things that offer us some measure of comfort. So look back at what John says in verse 16. He breaks down the components of love for the world into three parts. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And we can see here three different categories of worldly love, as Sarah talked about. Um, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And all these things promise some degree of comfort. 
The desires of the flesh are things that offer comfort to our bodies. The desires of the eyes are beautiful things that offer comfort to our hearts. And the pride of life are positions, possessions and achievements that offer comfort to our minds. And interestingly, these same three components were part of the very first temptation in the garden. So we read that earlier in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve was tempted. And it says that when she saw that the tree was good for food, please the body, that it was a delight to the eyes, please the eyes and the heart, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, please the mind, she took of its fruit and ate. So she was tempted by all three parts at once. And then we read the parable of the sower, where Jesus said that the same three things make the seed that he sows unfruitful. The fear of persecution, the body, the deceitfulness of riches, the mind, and the desires for other things, the heart. So these categories aren't necessarily distinct. There might be more than one in play at any one time. But I think it's helpful to list them out and separate them as John did, so that we can understand which kind we're most vulnerable to. So we're going to talk about them one at a time. Uh, First, the desires of the flesh. So these are things that give comfort to us through our bodies, right? Um, So if you get home after a hard day and you need a stiff drink to recover, that's a comfort of the flesh. Or if you eat chocolate when you're depressed, or if you eat a whole pint of ice cream, um, or if you use tobacco to help you relax, or sex for the bodily pleasure, these are obvious comforts of the flesh. But there are also some more subtle ones, like laziness. We allow ourselves that extra snooze alarm in the morning, or give ourselves plenty of time during the day to sit down and take it easy and relax. Or if we have an obsessive protectiveness of our own personal space. Or a feeling of outrage if our comfort is disrupted by illness or sleeplessness or someone else's need. All of these patterns in our hearts might point to a love for the world when it comes to the desires of the flesh. We're hoarding the world's goods to comfort our bodies. The second thing on the list is the desires of the eyes. So these are things that please us because of their beauty. And beauty offers comfort to our hearts. That's what it's designed to do. So the most obvious example of a desire of the eyes is pornography. But it's not the only one. Beauty in more innocent forms can also become a snare, just like a beautiful fruit was for Eve in the garden. So, for example, I read once in an English paper that the English singer Elton John spends thousands of pounds a month on fresh flowers for his home. Um, And that's a different kind of desire of the eyes. Um, And perhaps if we're overly invested in our wardrobe, or the decor of our homes, or we spend excessive time and money collecting rare and beautiful things. It might point to a love for the world when it comes to the desires of the eyes. We're comforted by beauty. And finally, John lists the pride of life. So these are things we might boast about, things that make us feel accomplished or successful. They comfort our minds that our future is secure. So these are things like our college degrees, or our personal wealth and property, our skills, our high-ranking positions in business or in government, our contacts, our reputation, really anything in which we might be tempted to boast. If our minds draw comfort and security from these things, then it might point to a love for the world when it comes to the pride of life. Now, some of these things I've listed in all those three categories aren't necessarily bad things. In fact, most of them are good things that God made and he wants to give us. But whether they're good for us depends on where we get them from. 
right? That's the key. Um, the world has all these things there on display, there for the taking. And John's critique of them at the end of verse 16 is that they come not from the Father, but from the world. So that's the important difference. The world presents them to us and says, take comfort in this. Love this thing. You don't need God. But we remember that everything that the world has on display is actually rotting. There's no real life there once it's been disconnected from the Father. So the world's goods might offer a little brief comfort to the body or heart or mind, but they can't scratch the place where we need comfort the most, which is in our souls. And they actually rob us of the much better comforts the Lord is offering instead. Friends, are you sure, do you know in your hearts that God is invested in your comfort, that he wants that for you? He wants to be your father. He's like Alice's foster parents who wanted her to be fed and secure and happy and to know that she would be every day. God wants us to throw away the old moldy sandwiches under the bed, not because he wants us to be left comfortless, but because he wants to give us a much better comfort instead. So Jesus promised in John chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Or the King James Bible translates that verse, I will not leave you comfortless. Jesus has fulfilled that promise by sending us his Holy Spirit, who is called the Comforter. So he wants to do far better than the world can do. And John, in this letter of 1 John, wants us to know the eternal soul comfort of coming into the light, of knowing forgiveness, of enjoying fellowship with God and with each other, and of being filled up with heavenly love. That's real and eternal comfort. And it's so much better than anything we can snatch for ourselves. I can tell you from my own personal experience that every time I've given up something of the world that I love, I've looked back on that thing as so much rubbish compared with what the Father gave me in its place. So we're being asked to leave behind the putrid, rotting morsels of the world for the fresh, eternal banquet of heaven. So here's what to do. Will you bring your need for comfort here? Will you bring it here? To this Father and this community, instead of self-medicating at home, Will you bring your need for comfort here and let us pray with you and counsel you and help you to find the comfort of God? And can you find the courage to throw away those old moldy sandwiches? We're going to start Lent together on Wednesday and begin to prepare our hearts for Easter. And Lent is the perfect time to practice denying ourselves the false comforts of the world. We can start by giving them up for these 40 days. And uh, most Lent's over the past few years, I've, I've given something up, something that I thought was a worldly comfort. And most times I find to my surprise that something else instantly emerges to take its place. Some equivalent comfort of the world. And I learn about my heart um, where it takes its comfort. So Lent's a really helpful practice, I've found. If the Holy Spirit has convic- convicted you today that there's a way that you're hoarding the treasures of the world for your own comfort, then now is a great time to let that treasure go. 
We remember Jesus challenging the rich young ruler. He said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. But he had to give up the world first, didn't he? He had to let that old rotting treasure go. And so do we. In the story of that rich man, he turned Jesus down. Remember that? He went away sad and empty. He was sad because he was still holding on to his great wealth. He was still holding on to that sack of moldy sandwiches. Let's make a different choice and give it up. So we can come to Jesus rejoicing and free, uncompromised and undivided. Amen.